Thank you very much, Dr. Bergwald. I am uh, extremely happy to be here. I would just ask the Holy Spirit people to behave uh, because sometimes they can get out of hand. I know this from experience. Um, first off, we're going to begin with a prayer, all right? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening as your children, seeking to learn the truth, and by doing so, to come to know Jesus Christ, who is himself the truth. We ask you to send your Spirit upon us to open our hearts and our minds and our ears that we may learn what you desire us to learn. We ask this through the intercession of our Blessed Lady as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, well, first of all, the first thing I want to do is to answer the question, why me? Why am I, Father Christensen, talking about Opus Dei? And the reason is, uh, probably more than anything, uh, that I am a cooperator of Opus Dei, which I'm not a member of Opus Dei. Uh, cooperators are people, as you'll find out a little bit later in the talk, people who support Opus Dei, who support them with our prayers uh, and financially if we can handle it. All right, so. Um, that's why me. I, I love Opus Dei. I love the spirituality. I love the founder, St. Jose Maria. Uh, so when the opportunity to talk about it came up, I jumped on the, uh, the opportunity right away. All right. So uh, another thing I want to say is uh, I do not represent Opus Dei. Okay? I'm not here on their behalf. Uh, I am speaking on my own behalf tonight. All right. So they didn't send me here. I am not an Obino monk. Um, I'm nothing like that. Okay. Uh, I'm not one of their henchmen out to murder someone tonight, so a um, little bit about that. Um, I thought I would start uh, the talk this evening uh, with a reading from the Unholy Gospel according to Dan Brown. Uh, so this, just a little, a little uh, snippet from the Da Vinci Code. One mile away, the hulking albino named Silas limped through the front gate of the luxurious brownstone residence. The spiked Silas belt that he wore around his thigh cut tight into his flesh, and yet his soul sang with satisfaction of service to the Lord. Pulling the shades, he stripped naked and knelt in the center of his room. Looking down, he examined the spiked Silas belt clamped around his thigh. All true followers of the way wore this device, a leather strap studded with sharp metal barbs that cut into the flesh as a perpetual reminder of Christ's suffering. The pain caused by the device also helped counteract the desires of the flesh. Although Silas had worn his Silas today longer than the required two hours, he knew today was no ordinary day. Grasping the buckle, he cinched it one notch tighter, wincing as the barbs dug deeper into his flesh. Exhaling slowly, he savored the cleansing ritual of the pain. Pain is good, Silas whispered, repeating the sacred mantra of Father Jose Maria Escriva, the teacher of all teachers. Although Escriva died in 1975, his wisdom lived on, 
His words still whispered by thousands of faithful servants around the globe as they knelt on the floor and performed the sacred practice known as corporal mortification. Silas turned his attention now to a heavy knotted rope coiled neatly on the floor beside him. Eager for the purifying effects of his own agony, Silas said a quick prayer. Then gripping one end of the rope, he closed his eyes and slung it hard over his shoulder, feeling the knots slap against his back. He whipped it over his shoulder again, slashing at his flesh. Again and again he lashed. Finally, he felt the blood begin to flow. St. Jose Maria Escriva was born in Barbastro, Spain on July 9, 1902. He had five siblings, four sisters and one brother, four of which died as he was a young child. His parents, Jose and Dolores, brought up their children within a devout Catholic family. Following his father's advice, he studied for a law degree at the University of Saragossa. His father died in 1924, and Jose Maria was left as head of the family at only age 22. He was ordained to the priesthood on March 28, 1925, and he began his ministry in a rural parish, and then afterwards was moved to Saragossa. In 1927, with the permission of his bishop, Father Jose Maria moved to Madrid to work on his doctorate in law. There, on the Feast of the Guardian Angels, October 2nd, in 1928, God showed him clearly the mission that had been hinting at him for several years, and he founded Opus Dei. The word Opus Dei is a Latin phrase, which means the work of God. From that day on, he worked with all his energies to develop the foundation that God had asked of him, while at the same time continuing to fulfill his priestly responsibilities that he had at the time. These brought him into daily contact with sickness and poverty in the hospitals and the poor districts of Madrid. When the Civil War broke out in 1936, St. Jose Maria was in Madrid. The religious persecution at the time forced him to take refuge in a variety of places. He exercised his ministry in secret until he was finally able to escape across the Pyrenees into southern France. At the end of the war, he returned to Madrid, and in the years that followed, he began giving retreats to lay people, to priests, and to members of religious orders. In the same year, 1939, he completed his doctorate in law. This is one of the greatest miracles, as I see it, a saintly lawyer. <laughs> That's a joke. Yes, you can laugh. In 1946, he moved to Rome. He took up residence there, and he obtained another doctorate in theology from the Lateran University, and he began working as a consultant on two Vatican congregations. He was also an honorary member of the Pontifical Academy of Theology and was made a Monsignor. He followed very closely the Second Vatican Council and was involved by uh, counseling and encouraging a number of the bishops who were involved. In 
He died suddenly in Rome in 1920, excuse me, 1975 on June 26th. Thousands of people, including a huge number of bishops, a third of the bishops in the entire world petitioned the Holy Father to canonize St. Jose Maria. And so on May 17, 1992, Pope John Paul the Great beatified St. Jose Maria, and then 10 years later proclaimed him a saint on October 6, 2002, in St. Peter's Square in Rome. St. Jose Maria is probably one of my favorite saints. His spirituality is extremely practical and able to be lived by all people in all situations in their life, which in many ways is exactly what Opus Dei is about. Uh, here you'll notice I have a, a picture in a frame of St. Jose Maria. Uh, this little holy card contains a relic of St. Jose Maria, a piece of his cassock. So uh, afterwards, if you'd like to come up and take a look at that, you're certainly welcome to do that. Opus Dei uh, has a reputation for being very structured, very rigorous, very mysterious, and in a lot of ways very confusing as far as its structure and, and names for different categories of members. Uh, Opus Dei is called a personal prelature in church law. Right? Now that term is in, a, in and of itself confusing. Huh? What the heck is a personal prelature? What do we, what, what's that mean? All right? A prelature is a group of prelates. And prelates are members of the hierarchy. Okay? We call them prelates. So a personal prelature is a group of prelates uh, that is personal in nature. I'll, I'll get into it a, a little bit more. What a personal prelature basically is, is a diocese without boundaries, right? We're all familiar with what a diocese is, right? We're in one right now. We're in the Diocese of Sioux Falls, right? A diocese is a geographical area in which people live and in which uh, a bishop resides and shepherds the flock in that geographic area, all right? So a diocese, we could say, is a geographical prelature, all right? A personal prelature has to do not with geographical boundaries, but is connected to the person. Right? We are members of the Diocese of Sioux Falls because we live in a specific geographic area. To be a member of Opus Dei, to be a member of a personal prelature, has nothing to do with geography, but rather with your person, with your commitment to Opus Dei. Right? Like a diocese, it is shepherded by a bishop. Right? Within Opus Dei, they call him the prelate of Opus Dei. It has a cathedral church in Rome where St. Jose Maria is buried. Uh, just like any other cathedral in the world, it has a chair, the, the cathedra, where the bishop sits as a symbol of his authority. All right? So a personal prelature, again, it's not a diocese that has to do with geography, but rather with the person themselves. It has no boundaries. The entire world is the diocese of Opus Dei. Right? Just like any other diocese, Opus Dei has their own priests. Right? I am a diocesan priest. I am responsible to the Bishop of Sioux Falls, although we don't have one right now. Hopefully soon we will. Please, God. Um, I, am, I am directly responsible to him, and I carry out my ministry within a geographic area. Okay? In the same way, Opus Dei has priests, priests of Opus Dei, directly responsible to their bishop, and they work throughout the world ministering to 
the people uh, who are members of Opus Dei, but also to anybody who seeks their services. Right? Opus Dei, contrary to Dan Brown, is not a religious order. It's not like the Carmelites or the Benedictines or the Jesuits. Right? It's a personal prelature. One of the reasons why that's such a big deal is because although canon law allows for personal prelatures, there's only ever been one, Opus Dei. It's the only personal prelature that's ever existed, which is why a lot of times it's looked upon as, well, who do they think they are? You know, they're the only one. All right? uh, so, because they're not a religious order, they don't have monks. All right? So, uh, Silas, our albino monk, no such thing in Opus Dei. All right? There's a guy named Silas in Opus Dei, however, uh, but he's not albino, he's African-American. I believe he's African-American. Uh, so, uh, there are no monks, albino or otherwise. Um, there's a great book on Opus Dei. Uh, I based a lot of uh, this talk on this book. It's by John Allen. All right? uh, he is a journalist. Uh, this book is excellent. All right? It's very objective. Uh, it, looks, uh, it just covers a lot of facts about Opus Dei. Okay? So if you want to learn more, this would be a great book. I used it a lot for this talk. According to John Allen, there are uh, 85,491 members of Opus Dei in the entire world. Okay? Of those 85,000-odd members of Opus Dei, 1,850 of them are priests, and the rest are lay people. All right? There are a number of different categories of the membership of Opus Dei. Now, you'll notice I said categories and not levels. All right? St. Jose Maria is very clear that there are not different levels in Opus Dei. There's one vocation to Opus Dei, it's just lived out in different ways. All right? So I'm going to use the word category instead of levels. All right? uh, this, uh, this is going to become a little more clear as I go through each category. All right? The categories aren't based on level, they're more based on availability, how available they are to carry out the mission of Opus Dei. All right, the first category, which makes up 20% of the membership, are called numeraries. All right? Now, these men and women devote their lives entirely to the mission of Opus Dei. They make a commitment to live a life of celibacy, uh, and they live in the centers of Opus Dei, the, the buildings out of which they, they minister to people, where they have their meetings uh, and days of recollections and retreats. The centers of Opus Dei, they live in them. All right. Some of these uh, men and women work full-time for Opus Dei, but many of them, the majority of them, have outside jobs uh, in a variety of fields from uh, being a carpenter to being uh, a surgeon. All right. They offer whatever salary they make except for what they need for living expenses to Opus Dei. They uh, receive extensive training in theology and spirituality, and because of that, they are the ones who normally have the leadership roles in Opus Dei. They're the ones who run the centers, who uh, organize the days of recollection, those sorts of things. These people are fully available to the work of Opus Dei. All right? If Opus Dei says, I have a task for you, these are the people, because they're not married, they're, they're celibate, they live in the centers, they can immediately respond wholeheartedly to, uh, to serve uh, the bishop, the prelate of Opus Dei. Right? The next category are called numerary assistants. This is a subset of numeraries. So if you're doing an outline, number one is numeraries. A, underneath that, are numerary assistants. Right? This is made up of about 4,000 women worldwide who devote themselves full-time 
to the domestic care of Opus Dei. So they do the cooking, uh, the cleaning, etc. All right. Within Opus Dei, they're sort of seen as the mothers of the center. St. Jose Maria wanted centers of Opus Dei to have a family atmosphere. All right. And in order to do that, well, you need mothers. Right? Within a family, it's just not the same without a mother's touch. And so he wanted these women to come in and to be the mothers uh, of the, uh, the numeraries within the uh, Opus Dei centers. They too are fully available to the work of Opus Dei. The next category are called associates. They are basically numeraries, so they're celibate and fully committed to Opus Dei, but because of uh, family responsibilities or personal circumstances, they don't actually live in the centers of Opus Dei. All right? They would live at home taking care of their elderly mother or, or whatever. All right? Uh, but they are basically numeraries. They carry out the same work and are, for the most part, fully available with a few exceptions. All right? Then there are the priests of Opus Dei. Right? They are sort of the diocesan clergy, if you will, of the prelature of Opus Dei. Um, it's just that, unlike me, their diocese has no boundaries. So theoretically, their prelate could send them anywhere in the world uh, to a center of Opus Dei, to provide spiritual direction, uh, to have retreats for the members of Opus Dei and anyone else who wants to take advantage of it. Um, uh, when I was in St. Louis in the seminary, uh, there's a center of Opus Dei there, and uh, the priests that generally I would go to confession to uh, were priests of Opus Dei, and they would have confessions at parishes for anybody who wanted to come. They would also put on a day of recollection every month, a day of prayer, uh, and uh, spiritual counseling and confession and adoration uh, for priests and seminarians. And I would usually go to them every month as well, uh, just for a little uh, formation on the side, right? A little spiritual encouragement on the side. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little familiar. I have some friends who are priests of Opus Dei, um, wonderful people, all right? And then the next category are cooperators. That's what I am. They are not members of Opus Dei. They make no commitments to work for Opus Dei, uh, they make no commitments of celibacy. They don't live in centers. They, they just try in their lives to uh, apply the principles of spirituality of Opus Dei uh, and to support Opus Dei by their prayers mostly. Uh, that's, that's the main task of a cooperator is to pray for the work of Opus Dei. All right. So what do these members do? What do people who have committed themselves to Opus Dei as a member, what do they do? According to John Allen in his book, Opus Dei members say that what they, quote, do in the first place is perform the ordinary tasks of their daily lives. Going to work, raising their kids, paying their taxes, spending time with their friends. All right? The real point of Opus Dei, they say, is not to engage in specifically religious activities, but to transform those ordinary tasks of their daily lives into pathways to holiness. The largest group of members of Opus Dei are not priests, and they're not committed celibates. They're ordinary people. 70%, I think it is, 70% of the membership of Opus Dei are people who have kids, who uh, work in ordinary jobs, and do ordinary things. But as it said, they try to transform those ordinary things into extraordinary means to gain holiness. Members of Opus Dei are encouraged to have what's called a plan of life. 
In fact, most spiritual directors, at least the good ones, recommend that all of us have a plan of life. A daily plan for our lives, which will help us to grow in holiness right where we are, in the midst of our daily duties. For instance, for a member of Opus Dei, the normal plan of life includes these things, all right? First and foremost, offering the day to God the first thing in the morning, as soon as they wake up. Sometimes this is referred to as the heroic minute, the first minute of the day. St. Jose Maria said this in reference to the heroic minute. He said, conquer yourself each day from the very first moment, getting up on the dot at a fixed time without yielding a single minute to laziness. If with God's help you conquer yourself, you will be well ahead for the rest of the day. And how true that is huh? in our own lives. If we can have the fortitude and the strength and the discipline to in the very first minute of the day give ourselves to God wholeheartedly, the rest of the day will be a lot easier. Right? Other things that they include daily in their plan of life, daily mass, daily rosary, mental prayer, usually for members of Opus Dei, a half hour in the morning and a half hour in the evening. The noon angelus, a daily examination of conscience, spiritual reading, usually about 10 minutes a day, scripture reading for about five minutes a day, and a daily visit to the Blessed Sacrament. They also have a set of prayers that they pray every day, prayers to the Holy Spirit, to Jesus, Mary, St. Joseph, the guardian angels, and to St. Jose Maria. All right? Not exactly too strenuous, huh? In fact, I bet a lot of us do most, if not all of these things, on a daily basis. All right? In addition to these things, the members of Opus Dei make a monthly day of recollection, as well as an annual week-long retreat. All right? Now for the juicy stuff. The stuff you've probably been wondering about because of my quote in the beginning, the corporal mortification. Uh, Dan Brown sensationalized this uh, unbelievably. I mean, you, read, you, you, you heard me read uh, from uh, the Da Vinci Code. It doesn't sound very good, all right, the way he presents it. All right? um, this part of the life of members of Opus Dei, specifically the numeraries, all right? They're the, the smaller group of people, the people who are celibate and who live in the centers of Opus Dei, all right? They are the ones who do uh, the severe, uh, I don't even really want to use that word because it's not severe. We'll get into that later, but uh, use the sensationalized forms of uh, corporal mortification, all right? So here's the truth. According to Father Michael Geisler, who is a priest of Opus Dei from St. Louis, by the way, he's heard my confession many times. Um, this is what he has to say in an article he wrote about corporal mortification. He says, voluntary mortification has an enduring power for both the body and the soul. Self-denial helps a person overcome both psychological and physical weakness. It gives him inner energy helps him to grow in virtue, and ultimately leads to salvation. It conquers the insidious demons of softness, pessimism, and lukewarm faith that dominate the lives of so many. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that spiritual progress entails the ascesis and mortification that gradually leads to living in the peace and the joy of the Beatitudes. So every person who seeks to be holy should make mortification a part of their lives. 
Mortification is much more or less, depending on how you look at it, than wearing a hair shirt, whipping oneself, or wearing a spike chain. That's a small part of mortification. It involves, mortification does, any embracing of the cross or any denial of self, which can take many, many forms. Even Opus Dei's founder, St. Jose Maria, and current members point this out. Within Opus Dei, the controversial forms of mortification, which I'll explain in a few moments, are only carried out, as I said earlier, by the celibate members of Opus Dei. Supernumeraries, the people who have ordinary jobs, are out in the world, according to Alan, do not go home at night and don the psyllis or whip themselves during prayer. They're too busy getting dinner ready, helping the kids do their homework, cleaning the house, and paying the bills. He goes on to say that this does not mean that supernumeraries do not perform acts of mortification, but generally it takes a simpler form. Taking out the garbage when it's not your turn. Or, for instance, refusing to be frustrated when a child makes a mistake for which he or she has repeatedly been corrected. Those of you who are parents know that that can be self-denial. Huh? Through his writing, St. Jose Maria makes many suggestions as to how all of us might practice Christian mortification. Here are a few of my favorite suggestions. Making sure that conversation doesn't revolve around yourself. Those who work with me know I'm not very good at that. All right? Smiling when you don't feel like it. My personal favorite, this is a great quote from St. Jose Maria. He says, that joke, that witty remark held on the tip of your tongue, the cheerful smile for those who annoy you, that silence when you are unjustly accused, your friendly conversation with whom you find boring and tactless, that daily effort to overlook one irritating detail or another in the persons who live with you. This, with perseverance, is indeed solid interior mortification. Since most of us are probably wondering what exactly these supposedly severe corporal mortifications are, I'm going to describe truthfully and honestly, without embellishment, what some members of Opus Dei do. First, the psyllis. You heard about this in my quote from Dan Brown. The psyllis is a spiked chain worn around the upper thigh for two hours each day, except for church feast days, Sundays, and certain times of the year. This particular means of mortification has its roots in the hair shirt, which originated in the region of Cilicia, thus the name Cilis. It was used for many centuries in the medieval Renaissance church, as a means of purifying the senses, atoning for sin, and winning grace for others. Second, the discipline. The discipline is a cord-like whip used on the buttocks or back once a week while reciting a brief prayer, usually either the Our Father or the Hail Mary. Both of these mortifications, according to one Opus Dei priest, should never draw blood. If you do, he said, you're doing it wrong. Let's also remember that most of us in our daily lives make corporal mortification a part of our lives. Now, for instance, do you discipline your body so as to be a better athlete or to lose weight? Joachim Navarro-Vols, Vols, who is the spokesman for the Pope 
and is also a member of Opus Dei, recently commented on how his regular workout at the gym is far more demanding than wearing a cilus. And Father C. John McCloskey, a priest of Opus Dei who uh, may be known by EWTN viewers, commented that, I see people jogging on a summer morning in D.C., and that looks more uncomfortable to me. I agree, as you can tell. All right? <laughs> These mortifications are not nearly as painful as one might imagine. John Allen, the author of the book on Opus Dei, donned the Silas, and here is what he had to say about his experience. It did not seem unbearable or masochistic. And running a mile, especially in my woeful physical condition, would likely produce greater hardship. So as you can see, the reality is a far cry from what Dan Brown and Ron Howard might present it as. These mortifications, although controversial, have been part of the spiritual landscape of Christianity for a very long time, beginning with Jesus' self-denial upon the cross. Even people who are well-loved and well-known because of their holiness, learning, and spiritual insight used these forms of mortification. For instance, Mother Teresa was very particular that her sisters do these penances, such as wearing the chain and doing the discipline. She told her sisters, and I quote, If I am sick, I take five strokes. I must feel its need in order to share in the passion of Christ and the sufferings of the poor. St. Padre Pio and St. John Vianney also used the discipline. St. Catherine of Siena wore a sackcloth shirt and would scourge herself three times a day in imitation of St. Dominic. St. Ignatius of Loyola, who recommended a spirit of continual mortification to his brethren, wore a hair shirt and heavy iron chain. Even St. Therese of Lisieux, famous for her little way and her love for God and others, fasted and used the discipline vigorously, quote, scourging herself with all the strength and speed of which she was capable, smiling at the crucifix through the tears which bedewed her eyelashes. Pope Paul VI, of happy memory, as well as St. Thomas More, wore a hair shirt. And Hans Urs von Balthasar, a famous theologian, used a Silas. Not only these holy men and women, but men and women who strive for holiness today use these means of mortification. For instance, Dist-Kelst Carmelite nuns and a number of branches of the Franciscan order use the discipline or the Silas even today. But why, you might be asking, would someone do this? Great question. And it's one that has been answered very well by spiritual masters throughout the centuries. In a nutshell, corporal mortification, severe or not so severe, trains our bodies to do what we tell it to do. It is a way in which we can exercise our will, our ability to choose between good and evil, even when what we choose is not necessarily easy or pleasurable. We all know from experience that sometimes our faith requires us to say no to things that our body, our sinful tendencies, or our hormones want so desperately. Mortification is one way to build up and tone the spiritual muscles of our will, so that when the inevitable temptations come, we have a history of successful self-discipline 
which will make it much easier to overcome these temptations. Father Geisler says this, as I I believe I quoted this earlier, self-denial helps a person to overcome both psychological and physical weakness. It gives him inner energy, helps him grow in virtue, and ultimately ultimately leads to salvation. Second, the annoyance, pain, and uncomfortable sensations that any form of mortification and self-denial provides can lead us to identify with and unite with the crucified Christ. It will awaken in us a true sense of repentance for sin and a desire to be with Christ, a co-redeemer of the world. Although some might claim that this embracing of mortification as a means of spiritual growth is dehumanizing, Father Geisler comments that, in contrast to the extremes of sadism or masochism, Corporal mortification is grounded in a healthy view of man and the world around him. Namely, that all of us are flawed and have sinful tendencies within us. A fact that all of us, if we are honest, can admit is part of our lives. That's the corporal mortification part. Now I want to talk just a little bit, I don't have a whole lot of time, about the message of Opus Dei, huh? What's the real message of what Jose Maria wanted to spread in his writings and in his teachings? There are five main themes that run through the spirituality of Opus Dei. And honestly, they run through the spirituality of the Catholic faith in general. The spirituality of Opus Dei is one way among many ways in which we can live out our Catholic faith. We know that throughout sacred scripture and the teachings of Holy Mother Church that we, as baptized Christians, are called to follow Jesus, to live the gospel, and to lead others to do the same. The message and the mission of Opus Dei is to do just that by teaching people that they are children of God, called to live their faith in the midst of their ordinary life by sanctifying their work, living a life of prayer and sacrifice, and living a life that is unified by the faith. Let's look at each of these individually. First, divine filiation. All right, that's a big word, filiation. It comes from the Latin root filio, which is son. right, that we are sons of the divine. We are sons and daughters of God. Divine filiation is the foundation of the spirit of Opus Dei, said St. Jose Maria. At our baptism, each and every one of us were united to Christ in such a way that God himself became our father. We are his sons and daughters. And as such, we are called to live our lives accordingly. If we truly want to live as sons and daughters of God, we must have a childlike attitude before God. We must run to him as little children run to their father for help in danger. We must run to him when we are hurt and wounded by sin. We must trust that when we fall, we can run to our father as little children who need his help and protection. St. Jose Maria says, he is there like a loving father. He loves each one of us more than all the mothers in the world can love their children. Helping us, inspiring us, blessing and forgiving. 
He also says how often we have misbehaved. And then cleared the frowns from our parents' brow, telling them, I won't do it anymore. That same day, perhaps, we fall again. And our father, with feigned harshness in his voice and a serious face, reprimands us. While in his heart he is moved, realizing our weakness and thinking, poor child, how hard he tries to behave. We've got to be filled, to be imbued with the idea that our Father, and very much our Father, is God who is both near us and in heaven. The second theme is living our, our living ordinary life in such a way that it becomes extraordinary. One of the most prominent and most practical themes in the spirituality of Opus Dei is the theme that all of us can and should seek holiness in the midst of our ordinary life. For Christians, every situation, whether it's working at a workbench, at a desk, in school, or changing diapers at home, can be an opportunity to love God, to show forth his love to those around us, and to unite ourselves to the cross. One doesn't need to go off and be a monk in order to find holiness. Rather, one can grow in holiness right where God has put us. That's the message of Opus Dei. That all of us, right where we're at, can become saints. We can transform the world, bringing Christ to everyone we meet. Jose Maria says, One must look for holiness in the middle of the world. A person who receives from God the specific vocation to Opus Dei is convinced that he must achieve holiness in his own state in life, in his work, whether it be manual or intellectual, and he lives accordingly. The third theme, sanctifying our work, making it holy. This principle, which again should be lived out in the lives of all Christians, not just members of Opus Dei, means that we offer everything we do to God as a means of sanctifying ourselves and the world in which we live. If we consciously offer to God all of our work, no matter if it's manual labor, household chores, or writing books, we would be sanctifying it, making it into a gift which we present to the Father through Christ. Work, according to the teaching of the church, is just not something we do for the sake of doing it. Work is sacred. It is in some way a sharing in the work that God himself undertook in creating the world. Our work is sacrificial giving, stewardship, if you will. It is sharing in the creative work of God. Now, if that's the case, and our work is a sharing in God's own work, then our work can be sanctified. It can be made holy. When we unite our work to the work of God and the glorious work of Christ upon the cross, then our work takes on great spiritual value, and it can be offered to God as a sacrifice of praise. In Opus Dei, there is a very strong worth ethic, which flows from this idea that work is holy, and it can be offered to God. And who wants to offer God something shoddily done? Work offered to God should be our best. St. Jose Maria says about work that it is a time for us Christians to shout from the rooftops that work is a gift from God. 
Work, all work, bears witness to the dignity of man, to his dominion over creation. It's an opportunity to develop one's personality. It's a bond of union with others, the way to support one's family, a, med- a means of aiding in the improvement of the society in which we live and in the progress of all humanity. The fourth theme, prayer and sacrifice. The formation given by Opus Dei encourages prayer and sacrifice in order to sustain the effort to sanctify one's ordinary occupations and one's ordinary work. As I mentioned earlier, members of Opus Dei do what anyone seeking growth and holiness would do. They live a life full of prayer and devotions, which we are all familiar with, such as the daily mass, sacramental confession, and reading and meditating on the gospel. There's also a very strong emphasis on devotion to our Blessed Lady through the rosary and other devotions. Members of Opus Dei also seek to imitate Jesus Christ by seeking to cultivate a spirit of penance, by offering small sacrifices, particularly those that help them fulfill their duties faithfully and make life more pleasant for others, things like renouncing small pleasures, fasting, almsgiving, etc., St. Jose Maria was very adamant that these sacrifices don't have to be big. It can be something as small as not buttering our toast, opening the door for that one coworker who annoys us to no end, or making sure that our homework is done neatly and on time. The fifth, unity of life. St. Jose Maria ex- uh, explained that Christians working in the world should not leave, live, quote, a kind of double life. On the one hand, an interior life, a life of union with God, and on the other hand, a separate and distinct professional, social, and family life. On the contrary, there is just one life, made of flesh and spirit. It is this life which has to become, in both soul and body, holy and filled with God. In other words, we cannot pray and be pious at Mass but at work be an irreverent slob using vulgar language. We must be what we are, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. These main themes run through the writings of St. Jose Maria, through the lives of members of Opus Dei, and hopefully through the lives of every Christian on the face of the earth. They're really nothing new. They have been taught by centuries by the great spiritual masters and are part of our Catholic heritage. So no need to fear. Opus Dei is not evil. It's not out to get you or anyone else. Rather, it's just one way among many to find holiness right where we are. Now for questions. All right. I believe Dr. Bergwald has the sacred microphone. Uh, the, the microphone is for the recording of the video. So uh, if you raise your hand, if you have a question, he'll come to you and use the microphone. Day through a member, but it was in Sioux City. I'm wondering if there's still a center there. Uh, the nearest center to Sioux Falls is sort of a toss-up between Chicago and St. Louis. Uh, there is a priest of Opus Day who comes monthly to uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, uh, but that's the closest thing that we have here. Um, so, um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. 
Minister, you were saying that um, the Opus Dei had to do more with the, the passion and, and the beating mm -hmm. of, the, of the body and so on and so forth. During the pla Black Plague in the Germanic area, a lot of the, the Germans would do that and they would actually suffer and, and pull their skin and, and produce blood and so on and so forth. Did they, they do this? Um, thinking that this would keep, prevent them from getting the Black Plague. Yes, uh, you know, th there, is, uh, there was a period in history during the Black Plague where uh, these, what we call penitents, right? These were uh, men and women who were convinced that if they just beat themselves hard enough that the Black Plague would go away, okay? That was condemned by the church, all right? There's a difference between, uh, you know, li like I said, you know, the, the, the mortifications that Opus Dei does and that have been done throughout the centuries, like I said, if they draw blood, you're doing it wrong, all right? Uh, we do it out of a respect for the body and the fact that the body is in our control. We're in charge. And sometimes, as we know, the body forgets that, right? And uh, so that sort of very severe uh, penances uh, were condemned by the church and always have been condemned by the church. Right? It's a difference in severity here. What Opus Dei does and what the church uh, has okayed is not that severe. Okay? So remember that. What, what, what Dan Brown is trying to get us to believe is the truth is closer to what happened during the Black Plague, where people did beat themselves until they were bleeding and blood was splattered all over the place. All right? That's not Opus Dei. That's not what the church would encourage in any way, shape, or form. One of the things that uh, Dan Brown says on that fact page is that uh, Opus Dei recently completed uh, uh, a center or something in Manhattan for something like 47 or $48 million. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I'd wonder if that's true, and secondly, if it is true, um, is that where the numeraries live in Manhattan in this big structure worth $47 million? And if it is true, where does that money come from? Does it come from these people who live there and, and donate their wages to Opus Dei, or does it come from donations somewhere? Yes, excellent question. Uh, that National Center for Opus Dei does exist in Manhattan. Uh, the money for that, at least in John Allen's book, uh, he says came from, I think it was one single donor built it for them. Uh, and um, it is nice. I mean, you know, if somebody has that kind of money to build a center, they're going to build a nice one. All right. Um, one of the, uh, the uh, usual complaints about Opus Dei is that they're living in these palaces. Okay? Uh, John Allen points this out as well, and it's been my experience having been to the Opus Dei Center in St. Louis, is that um, the main areas of the building, the chapel, the living rooms where often they'll have meetings, are very nice. Huh? They're presentable. All right. Uh, but when you go to the private quarters, it's not so nice. Huh? Um, and again, an another thing that sort of plays into this, why uh, everything around Opus Dei centers tends to be nice and clean and very pristine, is again, their, their idea that work is holy, and that if work is holy, we need to do it well. So when they clean, they clean well. And when they uh, buy a nice piece of furniture, they take care of it, you know, um, so, so yeah, I mean, you know, Opus Dei has money, yes. Uh, he also points out in here, he actually looks at it uh, and compares it to other 
worldwide organizations, and in the large scheme of things, Opus Dei is quite poor compared to other similar organizations. For instance, a diocese. Uh, a normal diocese has more money, more assets than Opus Dei ever would. Okay? So, to just sort of put it in perspective there. Um, are you familiar with Michael Walsh's book on Opus Dei? Michael Walsh? I, I don't think so. Okay. Do you know the title? Um, it's an investigative report of okay. Opus Dei. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, if I remember right, he's also um, maybe the founder or is involved with ODAN, which is a website, O-D-A-N, which stands for Opus Dei Awareness Network. Okay? And what that is, it's a group of people who have been in Opus Dei who are disgruntled. Uh, and so they say all sorts of things about Opus Dei. Huh? And, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are very anti-Opus Dei, people who have been members or, or not. And the, the, the thing to remember, just like any organization, there's always people who are hurt, right? In any organization in the world, somebody's going to be rude and offend somebody, or somebody's going to have a bad experience, all right? Uh, so, you know, Opus Dei is like any other organization. They have people who've been hurt by members of Opus Dei, Okay, so, so yeah, I, but I'm not familiar with that specific yeah. book. He talks um, a lot about the fact that it has a secretive reputation. Mm -hmm. why, why do you feel that? Yes. Yeah, you know, that's another claim. There's actually a whole chapter in this book talking about uh, this claim that Opus Dei is secretive. Huh? Uh, it's not, all right? Um, I have never uh, been, uh, I, I've asked a lot of questions of Opus Dei, and they've never not given me an answer. Um, one, one of the reasons that people think Opus Dei is secretive is usually the members, you know, again, they, they work in ordinary jobs, huh? most of them. And they usually don't go around proclaiming that they're members of Opus Dei. They don't wear a special pin or, you know, a religious habit of any sort. Huh? And generally, uh, they just don't tell anybody unless they ask. All right? So um, a lot of times people think that means they're being secretive because they don't wear a name tag that says, I'm a member of Opus Dei. Right, um, so that's it's part of it too. Yeah. Uh, for more, I mean, if, if you're interested in these questions, this is a great book. It really is. It covers all of these things that we've talked about so far in much uh, greater detail than I can. One more quick question: mm -hmm. um, Do most seminaries have Opus Dei houses in close proximity to them? Um, I would say no. Um, you know, there's a lot of seminaries out there, and there's not a whole lot of centers of Opus Dei in the United States. It's mostly your major metropolitan areas, you know, um, yeah, so probably not. Any other questions? Another one there. The uh, corporal mortification, um, as you've described it, resembles what you see these Muslims doing in their mm -hmm. holy days as yes. they're in mass walking down the street. I'm just wondering, is there any connection with that, or did it all arise out of the same thing, or maybe you could explain that? Yeah, I think um, certainly uh, Christians are not the only people who believe that it's uh, beneficial to uh, deny ourselves, okay? Uh, like you said, Muslims, they're, they're another uh, group of people who um, promote this, I guess you could say. Huh? Um, I would say there is a difference in degree, though, and a difference in why they do it, okay? Um, they tend to be a little more severe and work themselves into, you know, 
uh, all sorts of frenzies and, and whatnot. Um, you know, again, like I said uh, in here, you know, for the discipline, right? The 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 the, the whip. Uh, they use it for however long it takes them to pray an Our Father or Hail Mary, which is not that long. Okay, so you know, as you said, you know, seeing pictures of of Muslims uh, doing this for long periods of time, it's different in, in degree. I just wanted to comment on the whip. Um, I was able to be privileged to use it actually, uh, and the, during the recitation of a Latin misery. Mm -hmm. Psalm 51. Yeah, okay. and really, I know people that do, that have done palanca for Curseal, like wearing a corn, a piece of corn in their shoe all day long, which is a whole lot worse <laughs> than, yeah. than the, the, the whip is hardly nothing. Yeah, exactly. You know, and again, you know, we're all called to do some form of self-denial, okay? Um, and that, that can be things extremely simple and things in our ordinary life that we all encounter. Again, you know, what a great uh, act of self-denial it would be uh, to offer what we do at the gym to God as a way of disciplining ourselves. So not only does it have physical benefits, but spiritual as well, huh? Again, the, the spirit of Opus Dei of taking ordinary things and making them holy, all right? So yes, your workout can be holy. It can be a way to discipline yourself and to unite yourself to the suffering of Christ. That's what I have to focus on when I work out, you know, the sufferings of Christ, because I really hate it. So, uh, so yeah, okay? Um, got about two minutes left, according to my watch. Father, since there are so many different forms of corporal mortification, if you're an Opus Dei member, are you expected to use certain forms, or is it very much an individual uh, It's decision? very much an individual thing. Huh? And, um, of course, people who are members of Opus Dei uh, have spiritual directors, right? Uh, priests or lay people, uh, depending on the situation, uh, for each individual member of Opus Dei, who can sort of help you and guide you uh, as to um, what sort of things you might want to, an individual person might want to do in their lives. Huh? Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's very individual, and it should be. Huh? You know, I need to deny myself in areas that uh, you know some of you might not need to. You know, it's an individual thing. We all have our own issues, our own. Uh, favorite sins, as I like to call them, that we need to work on. Huh? Uh, and so it should be something individual. Right? I could probably stand to fast a little bit more. You know, others might not. So, okay. Uh, there's one more. This will be the last one, I think. I just wanted, I just wanted to ask if they're, the priests are Catholic, considered Catholic priests and their masses considered Catholic masses? Yes, they, they are Catholic. Their priests are validly ordained Catholic priests who uh, minister the sacraments the same way I do. Uh, it's just that their diocese is worldwide and not geographical. Okay. All right. Uh, before I close with a blessing, a couple things. Uh, if you're interested in reading more about the spirituality of Opus Dei, I have a number of books. You can come up and, and look at them. Uh, maybe write down the titles and the authors. Um, also, I have some holy cards of St. Jose Maria. Feel free to take one or more, um, as well as uh, my business card in case you have more questions, want to get a hold of me, want to talk more about it. 
uh, feel free to do so. All right? So uh, why don't we uh, stand, and I'll say a closing prayer and give you a blessing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we praise you, and we thank you for bringing us together this evening to learn more about your church, to learn more about how to live as your child. We ask you to be with us as we go forth here. Please send your angels to guide us, to keep us safe, and always in your love. We ask this in the name of Jesus the Lord. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless.